Welcome into the Housing Hour with Kevin Ray, a locally produced program devoted to bringing you a fresh perspective on housing, diving into the issues that matter most. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray is presented by Mortgage Investors Group. Now, Kevin Ray. Welcome into the Housing Hour. My name is Kevin Ray. I'm your host. I'm here with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. We want to thank you for stopping into the Housing Hour today. Thank you so much for participating in our show here. And we're thankful for the opportunity to speak into your life this weekend, this week. Um, thank you so much. And we're uh, excited about today's show. We're actually going to run some an interview that we had uh, last year and really an amazing um, place uh, which is Plymouth Plantation, and it's up up north. And Mark, you know, the interesting thing is, is that it's similar to Williamsburg that people may know of, a little bit mm-hmm. closer to home. But it's 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 amazing the history and the arts and all that they do up there. I mean, it's really a remarkable place. Well, the Plymouth Colony is iconic, and it's mm. a it's just a great story, and everybody loves it. And and there's nothing more iconic than Thanksgiving and, and that big feast that they have with all the, the Native Americans there. Mm-hmm. So it's a wonderful time of year just to refresh our memories about what makes this country great. And this is the beginning of it, really, in my opinion. And you wrote a great article that I'd love for us to publish again okay. last year about about the whole situation, right? Absolutely. I, I did. What and, was the uh, name of it Well, again? this this was about the, the, the Plymouth voyage coming over. Um, right. It's a love letter that launches— launched a new world Mm -hmm. and it's really about a pastor on the other end of the story and then the mayflower coming over and how they landed and all the and and the mayflower compact it's history this plymouth plantation tackles things that happened well before the mayflower ever came over i mean am i not mistaken we're talking about things that certainly they they do definitely look at that as well but they cover a, a oh, yeah. vast history this this thing is area. complete uh, they've done a, a plymouth plantation has done a fantastic um real hands-on life presentation we see these all over the place right but this one is re- pretty cool i want to get up there to visit it and i know you do too Absolutely. williamsburg is is an, a great example of something similar like you mentioned before and it's just a lot of fun for the family and they also you know we'll, we're going to be talking and you're going to hear our story with um, mateo who is yeah. going to be interviewed um, but they also have things in december as well post thanksgiving and you will find that on their website, and we'll talk about that in this interview. But some amazing things. They have plays. They have wreath-making workshops. Of course, Breakfast with Santa, all these great, cool things. So why don't we um, load that up, and uh, we're going to play that for you, and then we'll be back after this segment. So check out this interview right now with Mateo. Right now, we're going to bring in our guest. Our guest is Mateo Brault. He's um, actually a blacksmith uh, is what he is. And we just want to thank him first. Let me bring you in, Mateo. Thank you for coming in today. Hey, thank you so much. It's a real honor to be here. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I know that uh, the work that you do is very important to you and what you all are doing. If you don't mind, before we get started, let's let's just give our listeners kind of the 30,000-foot view of what Mateo does and what, what really your passion is and in, in, in when we talk about the early days and what it took and, and what you're doing. And let's talk about that. And your website as well, for those who are listening, is Plymouth.org. It's P-L-I-M-O-T-H dot O-R-G. But go ahead and give us that 30,000-foot that view. So uh, Plymouth Plantation is a living history museum. So it, 
its mission is to bring uh, really history to to life, so that you can interpret, uh, you can interact with uh, costumes uh, interpreters who are all historians. They all know uh, the source materials. They're archaeologists. They're craftspeople who are all trying to uh, flesh out history for us to uh, really explore in ways that expand from a from a book. Mm-hmm. You know, the ways that, that you really can't get from reading books or, or studying. So it, it's really, the mission is to uh, really allow people to step back in time. That is truly amazing. I love going to places that history is being retold and not in a fictional way, but they're really trying to get to the facts like Williamsburg as an example. It's a lot of fun. I love that place. Yes. Williamsburg, as far as blacksmithing goes, uh, Williamsburg has the best program in the country. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, we are probably recruiting you. I would say, huh, Mateo? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I'm sending out my resume. (laughs) That's right. You're taking your official visit this weekend. We, We, uh, we love them. Well, that's great. Well, I, th- I would imagine in your all's industry that the fact that you guys are a Smithsonian Institute affiliation, I guess, affiliated with them, and you have those programs available. So clearly, you know what you're doing, and, and you've been given the rubber stamp. And um, But I would imagine in, in your all's industry, you know, the very most important thing is having factual kind of things in your program, I would imagine, correct? Uh, absolutely. Uh, we don't speculate. Uh, we we try not to make too many uh, educated guesses. Mm-hmm. We we rely on the source material. Thankfully, the what what sets Plymouth apart from other colonial ventures is that they they really kept good firsthand accounts. Mm. They wrote down things that happened to them. Not only did they, but there were foreigners and other visitors who also described the colonial venture at at Plymouth. So. One of the reasons why uh, Plymouth Colony is as fascinating as it is is because there's an extensive written record from the settlers, uh, and that's pretty unique. Well, and also I think of our history, let's say um, we are, what, 20, you know, 2,000 plus years into um, A.D. here, and, and you think about that's really not that long ago in terms of the sequence of our entire, you know, existence, I guess you would say. And so, true. It's yeah. very true. 2020, the year 2020 is our 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims right. landing. Yeah. Yeah. That's like toddler years, really. You know, <laughs> I mean, much. I mean, if you think about it, so the firsthand accounts that the written record, which is obviously the best records that you can have, the firsthand accounts, I think are, are vitally important. Um, when people, when I said Plymouth plantation, some people think the spelling is P-L-Y-M-O-U-T-H, but your all spelling is different. Yep. Tell me why you, why that is, maybe so that we can just understand it. Sure. So the, the modern town of Plymouth that I work in now is, is spelled P-L-Y-M-O-U-T-H. Mm-hmm. And the reason why Plymouth Plantation is spelled P-L-I-M-O-T-H is because in the 17th century uh, in English, English doesn't have uh, a formal uh dictionary or glossary there's no formal organization of spelling Mm -hmm. so people spell words the way that they uh really any way that they see fit there's over 40 different spelling like my son actually my son does that he's six years old that's exactly what he does 
Yes, yes. It, yeah. It's basically just people who are literate, uh, they right. just spell things out phonetically, however mm-hmm. they see fit. Well, that's interesting because I think it's I think it's a neat spelling of it, actually. And one of the other things um, is plantation, the word plantation. In the South, there's a different connotation when you say plantation, but sure. in your neck of the woods, that has a different meaning, doesn't it? It does. It does. It's an English. Uh, the plantation is an English extension of uh, culture. There, a plantation is a settlement, uh, a colony, and and it does have a different connotation from the south, uh, from the southern uh, vernacular. Right. But uh, there are plantations in Ireland in the 17th century. There are plantations in Newf- Newfoundland. There are plantations in Scotland. It, it, it's and also Bermuda. It, it's it's a different concept, a different idea. But the the idea of it is to to colonize, to spread spread their culture. I was reading through the about us section of your website, and they're talking about seven decades of living history. And I would imagine, as we have here, um, a lot of times if you if you go to a certain part of of our state. You might see a, a reenactment of the Civil War, for instance, and you may sure. you may get to talk with people who are in costume, and you know they literally don't come out of character at all. Do you guys have some of that available for people to be involved with, maybe at certain festivals? I'm just speaking maybe out of turn here, but is that uh, something that people could experience? Oh, a- absolutely! Here at the museum, we have uh, we have four major sites. So we have the English Village which is a recreation of, of 1627 Plymouth. And it's peopled by uh, 30 uh, costumed role players who are all uh, in character. I love it. And then uh, there's the native site, which is a, a re- really a, a, a recreation of a traditional Wampanoag uh, home site. Right. And the interpreters there are they're not role players. They're modern natives. Mm-hmm. And they interpret uh, modern Native culture while being in uh, Native garb. I, I think it's amazing because if you think about what happened there in 1620, I guess it was, and you had these two cultures that collided, right? Yeah. And when they collided, you know, it, it really was one of the first that, that I know of. I'm sure it happened in other areas and other parts of the world, but it's the only that I was taught as a child. Um, and, and understanding that dynamic between these two, I mean, you thought you think about the, the house that you just mentioned. I cannot pronounce it. What was the name of the type of home that the Native Americans had? Uh, they they call them uh, Weetus. Okay. So you had that, and then you start looking at what the pilgrims built. And, you know, obviously they're very different in, in architecture and so forth. But also that the home that f- was for the Native Americans, it was was the woman's home. It was the mother's home. And, and it was it was given that title, and, and that's because she was going to bear the children in that home, and she was also going; those children were going to be the future of their people. Yeah. And yeah, then you look at the, the you look at the pilgrims; the they have a different are, philosophy, are I guess. Matrilineal, so they follow a a matriarchy where women are the uh, the purveyors of of ownership. It's different from the West, where almost every Western culture is a patriarchy where where uh, men men own and transfer wealth to each other from mm-hmm. father to son so it was different in in the other culture you spoke of i mean that is that is yeah, like day yeah, and night 
I mean, I, I'm not entirely sure about the Wampanoag, but I, I'm I'm confident a lot of the tribes along the eastern seaboard were uh, matrilineal, meaning mm-hmm. that women women hold property and and um, heritage and genetic descent is traced through your mother or your grandmother. That's very instead interesting. Of, instead of through your father, like for example, the Vikings, where Leif Erikson is the son of Eric the Red. Mm. Um, that's a different. And and you're absolutely right that Plymouth. One of the reasons why Plymouth is set apart from the other colonies and the other museums is that uh, Plymouth is one of the few examples worldwide of two cultures uh, living side by side and, and being at peace. And, mm. and there's peace for 70 years, by the way. Yeah. They, do, they do eventually go to war, and that, that results in the King Philip's War. Yeah. Is that for seventy years? I get you. You have two cultures that are uh, living side by side and getting along, and that that is very rare in Mm -hmm. the study of human history. We can't even go seven years without going to war. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so wow, that that was great, and Matteo really helped us understand too why it's spelled the way it is. I like that fact uh, that it's spelled that way. So that's very interesting, and um, I'm sure my son will appreciate what I had to say about (laughs) him. I'm sure as well. So right after these messages, we're going to go on to segment two of this great interview with Matteo. We'll be right back after these messages. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour, and there is no such thing as possible right here with Kevin Ray, your host, and Mark Griffith, your co-host extraordinaire. Thank you guys so much. I'm just playing around a little bit. Just an exciting time of year. Um, We're so grateful and thankful um, for all the opportunities that you have given us over the years, celebrating 26 years. As a matter of fact, we just celebrated 26 years in Knoxville, in Tennessee, and beyond. So um, on behalf of everyone at Mortgage Investors Group, as we lead up, we are not going to tell you thank you enough. So with that being said, we've got our next segment coming up with Mateo, and uh, he is from the Plymouth Plantation. It's sort of a Disney World for pilgrims. And historian nerds like (laughs) me. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, we were talking in the second, we're going to talk about it in the second segment, about um, from his perspective, getting his sort of um, viewpoint on that voyage that happened in, in the aftermath of the Mayflower in 1621 and that divergence of the two cultures and what happened as a result of that. You know, there was just just a lot of friction that was happening. And it was, you know, there were a lot of things that came out of the a result of um, you know, the, the people, the pilgrims and the Indians. I mean, you hear all the stories. Some of that is true that you hear. Some of it is not. Certainly, I don't think they had a meal around a table together the first day they stepped foot. They didn't. They right. had a tough go of it. Really These did. were very, very tough, hardcore, hardy people. Absolutely. And, you know, the Indians were certainly, and I can only imagine when, if somebody came into my territory and tried to take over my land, it would have been a very difficult pill to swallow. It you know. was, but they were, you know, they were pretty friendly at first. Yeah. Um, even though the 
you know, the pilgrims were kind of stealing their food. Right. Because they were trying to survive the winter. Right. So it was a tough time for Yeah, and everybody. that's why I can't wait for you to to publish your story again because it, it really speaks it to— starts, It starts overseas yeah. in that hard voyage coming over right. and then the, the disunity right there when they came into— um, their first landing mm-hmm. and they they were lost or they were they missed their mark so to speak and the people we are such a resilient people and so are i mean human beings are in general and so we've coexisted with other you know cultures for many many years so let's go ahead yep. and load this up and dave will put this in for us and we'll be back after this uh after this part of the interview so talk talk us through what it was like for that beginning pilgrimage that pilgrim of of 1620 so the best way for me to describe it is just that it's it's it would be something that really very few of us will ever experience or will ever need to experience. It, it would have been very very brutal, mm. and uh, it's a testament to how tenacious these people were. Mm-hmm. All all of their faults aside, and they do have faults, uh, they're incredibly tenacious and. They create a civilization where there literally is none. Other uh, than the Native Americans. Yeah, their own they, civilization. And they, what I mean to say is there, there's no Western civilization. Right. And uh, these guys are, uh, they're hardcore. Um, they're really, really, really hardcore. And in the very beginning, they stay, uh, they use the Mayflower basically as a, as a uh, launching point. So they sleep and live on the Mayflower, but they work on the land to, to make houses and to make what they call common houses. Mm-hmm. And those are just basically great big uh, warehouses. Uh, I mean, not very big by modern standards, but right. these people have to house uh, a little over 100 people. Right. So, well, they had 11 built, I think, in the second year I read on your site. Which which would be those types of homes I'm imagining. That's right. And we in my uh, my department is the historic arts and trades department, and we're we're in charge of building and maintaining the entire English village. Wow. And uh, one of our interpretive points is that uh, those first few houses are uh, they're going to look different than houses that are built a few years afterwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're limited in a lot of ways by the weather. Uh, by their materials, uh, the fact that half of them die that first winter. Half of them. Ha- just wow. about half their number die. Which is probably yeah. what allowed them to survive. I hate to say it like that, but, you know, you had so many people that were sick from the voyage, from the three months on, you know, and, and there was a lot of people that were having to care for these people. I'm sure it was, like you mentioned, tenaciousness. You have people dying all around you of God knows what, and they had to, they had their eye on the prize. Mark published again on our site, the written kind of stuff that you had. Talk about what you wrote. Cause I want to plug it in here a little bit with what you, and, and go ahead and share with Mateo what you wrote on our website. Well, what I found interesting Mateo was that um, when they came over and left Delft Shaven 
and they had their voyage over here and how tough it was. And when they first landed, what we're talking about in Cape mm-hmm. Cod, they missed their mark and landed in the wrong location. And that's right. how they they started arguing on board. And they came up with the Mayflower Compact as a way of uh, appeasing everybody and making sure that they had structure. So that's where my article kind of jumped mm-hmm. in from uh, what really led to the Mayflower Compact and how what maybe influences uh were uh, generated uh, from other sources that helped generate the Mayflower Compact. So that's where I came in. But it was just fascinating mm-hmm. to me because once they got on soil, then uh, they had the Native Americans, Massasoit. Uh, what was Massasoit? Was that yep, his Ma- name? Massasoit. That's right. Massasoit is a, it's a, something that we've learned is that it's actually a title that is similar to a king. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, his real name is Usamequin. Which means yellow feather. Now, was this Pocahontas' father? No, I'm <laughs> no, just no. kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, but you know, they, but it's a it's a great story. So my question is, when they came over after they came off uh, and, and started building, did the natives uh, help them uh, build? Or I mean, because no. they had they didn't do anything like that, did they? No, no, they they did not help them build. Um, the, their first encounter is actually really interesting. Uh, they, the Pilgrims first land uh, on the coast of what's called Provincetown today, mm-hmm. and that's at the very tip of Cape Cod. Wow. And they landed there first, or at least they sent an expeditionary party onto the beaches, and those, those men, uh, about a dozen of them, they were searching uh, and really just checking the place out, and they saw uh, on a distant beach a group of three a native man and a native woman and a dog. They wow. saw them walking down the beach, and when the natives saw them, they ran into the woods and called for their dog. And that was the first time that they saw natives. Uh, now, later on, when they're uh, in the modern, uh, when they're in Plymouth, and they're scouting out the location in their building, their building houses, a native man walks into town. He's wearing a red coat. His name is Samoset. And Samoset is not, he's not a Wampanoag. He's not one of the local natives. He's from, he's actually from uh, the Penobscot in Maine. Uh, No one really knows why he's, he's even there, but that's who he is. And he says to the English, he says, uh, I believe he says, welcome Englishman or hello Englishman in English. He can speak some English from from his time uh, trading with English fishermen and, and tradesmen. Wow. Maybe Jamestown? So, would he had any... Uh, inf- no, I guess that was gone by that time, wasn't it? Uh, Jamestown did begin before uh, before the Mayflower landed in Plymouth, but uh, I, I doubt that Samoset would have gone that far south. Um, he, he probably learned some English pieces of it uh, just from the extensive... Uh, English fishing fleets that were off the coast of Maine and Newfoundland. They had been going to that area for over 100 years prior to 1620. So I hope that that helped you understand a little bit more about that transition from it being all Native Americans to being pilgrims and Native Americans and just why it's so important what they're doing at Plymouth Plantation. Um, And we're going to continue this conversation with Mateo right after these messages. We'll be right back.
The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. And welcome back into the Housing Hour. Thank you guys for joining us. We're so very thankful for you, and uh, we're just grateful for the opportunity to have this show in a country that we love working for a company that we are blessed to be a part of. And we just want to say thank you to um, you, your family, and everyone else. Um, Thank you so much. And we're not going to be able to thank you enough. Even though it's not quite Thanksgiving yet, we just want to say thanks because that's important to us. So uh, we also do want to say thank you to Mortgage Investors Group. Um, If you'd like to uh, learn more about them, you can go to MIGonline.com or call them at 865-691-8910. For our folks uh, that are not in this area code, it's 1-800-489-8910. So um, next on tap, we're talking with Mateo from the Plymouth Plantation, um, and he is uh, a gentleman who works there. He's a blacksmith. He does quite a bit of things there at the Plymouth Plantation. And I can only imagine he also dress up, dresses up in costume. I can't remember if we asked him that. No, he does. But he, I'm he sure. Does. He does. Yeah. He, he goes all out. I'm sure he does. And I think that this next segment, we talk more about the, um, the what I spoke of earlier, that that transition and that divergence and you know there's a lot of friction and we talk about some interesting characters that um, came upon as a result of um, and I think Mark tries to interject some of his uh, history knowledge and and that's interesting and I failed so <laughs> we'll, go, we'll go forward <laughs> um, I think he, he kindly redirected you at that point but no I think it's amazing because there was a lot of friction and you know you think about all of the history that you know of and most of that is not true actually so listen to this segment and then do your own research. I mean, Google it up. Don't just depend on Wikipedia. Nathan Philbrick wrote a great book called The Mayflower. Mm-hmm. Highly recommended. Highly recommended by another famous author, mm-hmm. Mark Griffin. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to dial this up, Dave, and then we'll be back after the end of this segment. Pilgrims become uh, part of the national mythology uh, more towards the late 19th century. Uh, prior to that, and, and that's due to... Uh, the rise of nationalism and, and and basically just our nation trying to figure out who we were at right. the time mm-hmm. uh, after the Civil War, trying to reestablish what it means to be an American. Right. Bef- before that, uh, people didn't really know much about Plymouth Colony. They didn't really uh, connect the dots. Maybe they didn't see the connections that we see now in hindsight. Mm. So I would say I'm sure it was influential. Um, I think there's a lot of other things that were also uh, that the founding fathers were also looking at. Well, the, I was thinking more of the ideals that set forth from the document and uh, just the sure it, it kind of went through history. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. it, it definitely, as far as uh, English culture goes at the time. Keep in mind, these people have a king, and every every European has a king, right? And so. For them to create uh, what they call civil body politic, in as they say in the compact, uh, that is pretty interesting. It, it's not um, it's not illegal. It's not technically uh, breaking the law. Uh, they were not granted to create a government, however, uh, and that could have created some tensions. Mm-hmm. 
but it seems to have passed over pretty pretty well with the crown. And, and keep in mind, these people are they still consider themselves loyal members of of the 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 sovereign king, King and, James, and, and then King Charles. So so we had some peace kind of going there for 70 years, you mentioned, and I'm sure there was ups and downs and, and there was certainly a lot to deal with, but. And then there was Thanksgiving. Yeah. The there, first was, Thanksgiving. there was the first Thanksgiving, but over that 70 year period, you know, there was a lot of working out to do. And after 70 years, there was some turmoil that, that came upon us. And could you give us kind of a brief description of, of, what set these events off is such a hard thing to do. We sure. only have a short period of time, but give sure. us just some sound bites. Yeah. So the King Philip's war, as this war is called, it's a war that is not very well known in the rest of of the United States. It, it's known regionally in new England and believe it or not, uh, because it takes place before the creation of the United States, it's not listed as a, as a war that the United States fought in, mm-hmm. but Technically speaking, it has the highest casualty rate per capita of any conflict on American soil. Wow. Uh, because of uh, about a third of the uh, New England colony is destroyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a massive number. Um, compare that to, you know, during World War II, I think less than 1% of uh, American citizens died. So we're talking a third of the population is gone. Uh, during the King Philip's War, it's a very brutal conflict, and and the uh, reason for that is because they their ideals begin to um, conflict, if you will, um, yes. with with their king. Uh, or no? Well, the the King Philip's War is fought between the Wampanoag natives, okay, and the the English settlers. Mm, okay. So it, it it doesn't involve I the see. crown. Uh, it doesn't involve English. Uh, it's not a war between the English or any. These people, keep in mind, they're still English, mm-hmm. and they still consider themselves English. Um, the conflict begins, uh, really, in 1620. Uh, you have a foreign culture that moves into a place, and and the pilgrims and their descendants are, uh, they're not going to stop. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the thing. They're going to grow and grow and grow, and they're not going to, to stop that growth. And they start pushing against the boundaries of other uh, cultures like the Wampanoag. And uh, some specific incidents are that uh, a lot of the English cattle mm-hmm. are uh, free-ranging, and they eat uh, a lot of the crops that the natives grow. Mm-hmm. And and there's frequent accounts of uh, natives going to court complaining that English animals are eating their crops, and can you please, you know, fence them in, keep them out? You know, we're trying to uh, grow food here, mm. and and so that's a real source of conflict between the two. And uh, what it essentially is is just that the English uh, were expanding aggressively, and we're never going to stop. And uh, and the natives lived there and weren't going to go anywhere. So war was, uh, it, it was going to happen, and it did happen. And it, like I said, it's per capita the worst war on U.S. soil. So, uh, I mean, at the end of the war, the, the Wampanoag are defeated, and 
essentially uh, consumed. Uh, they, a number of them are sent to Bermuda as slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, a number of them are kept as uh, prisoners on Deer Islands uh, just off of Boston Harbor. And the rest of them are uh, forced to um, either leave or uh, assimilate. And uh, it's it's pretty brutal. It's a brutal conflict. There's really no happy ending to it. And uh, it, it's something that a lot of people in the rest of the, the U.S. Uh, don't know about. It's not really taught. Yeah, I don't see it on the timeline here. And, and the uh, Massasoit son, Philip, is the one that instigated this war. Is that... Well, he's he's the leader of the Wampanoag uh, during the war, and, and yes, there there is some some historians credit him with being the uh, you know the instigator. Uh, there's all different opinions, but he, his his native name is Metacom, and he is a he's a very controversial figure within the native community, uh, within uh, the field of historians. He's he's a real interesting guy, and and that conflict. Is uh, it's a really sad one. There's a lot of uh, really terrible things that happen on both sides. A lot of cruelty and, and barbarism, and uh, it's it's a sad thing. But it is important to remember that there was 70 years of peace. Right. Yeah. And I I know that 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 kind of sounds silly, knowing that there's a war later. But 70 years of peace for two distinctly different cultures who speak different languages, they live different lifestyles, they, they have different religious beliefs. It's very, very fascinating. Well, they passed a treaty in 1621, kind of, right? That's right. They, so when the, when the pilgrims land, they, they're quickly, uh, they quickly realize that they're surrounded by other people. And what they do is they, they essentially uh, open themselves up to listen to whoever comes to them. And the person who comes to them is Massasoit mm-hmm. and, and the Wampanoag people. Massasoit basically offers them a military alliance so that the, the, the Wampanoag will protect the pilgrims and the pilgrims will protect the Wampanoag. Mm-hmm. And they sign a, a treaty between kings, between King Charles and, and the Massasoit. Mm-hmm. So it's not a treaty between the pilgrims and the natives, it's a treaty between the natives and the English crown. Mm-hmm. And, and there was only how many, there was only 101 English settlers on the Mayflower, right? Uh, I, yeah, yeah, about that. And, and like I said, half of them die the first winter. Right. And then a few ships come in the next few years and unload mm-hmm. uh, more passengers. Right, right, right. So by the time of uh, 1627, the year that we portray at Plymouth Plantation, there's about... 150 adults, I believe, and maybe 200 people altogether. Mm. But it, it's difficult to know. We know the number uh, roughly because they they had um, what's called a cattle division. Uh, when they brought over livestock, they divided uh, each each uh, livestock amongst families, and they have them listed in a in a census. Mm-hmm. So that's how we know how many people there were, and and also how we know who was there. Uh, right. Literally, you know, family, name, uh, children. We we know uh, quite a lot, and, and again, that's what sets 
Plymouth apart from some of the other uh, colonies is that this place is very well documented. There, I told you, what an amazing story. I mean, it's really interesting to learn. And this is a great place. And I hope that you and your family have the opportunity to go there. Mark and I are going to wrap this up right after these messages. We'll be right back. The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray continues, helping you understand what is really going on out there and what to do about it. Again, Kevin Ray. Welcome back into the Housing Hour. This is Kevin Ray, your host, with Mark Griffith, our executive producer and co-host. And we want to thank you again for stopping by. Hopefully you enjoyed that show. And um, thehousinghour.com is where, if you'd like to share that show, this show, with friends or family, you can go to thehousinghour.com and um, click on the share link or copy the URL. I think everybody's getting accustomed how how to share things. You know? They do a really good job. I yeah. mean, we have a lot of likes and a lot of shares. How many um, listens have we had in our history on SoundCloud? Do you know? Oh, my goodness. Probably 300,000, 400,000. So a lot of people are learning how to do it, and we appreciate every one of those. Um, And I think that learning the history of how our nation came about is very important for future um, events and future histories because learning how we actually developed and created what we know today as the United States, obviously in 1621 there was no United States, but it certainly helped us to form um, what we have today when the colonies um, developed and whenever we obviously became a, a nation in 1776 and, you know, England and the United, what we know as the United States. I mean, it's really an amazing history. It's almost like a storybook ending, really. It, it really is. And, and the piece that I love the most is what I wrote on is that social contract that was written in the, in the uh, yeah. heart of that ship when they uh, missed their first mark and that's the mayflower compact and that's really what that is it's a social contract and it plays out through the history of our documents and our founding uh, fathers that wrote our uh, independence and there's actually a lot of people that didn't make it over did they no they did not make it over and there's there was a lot of things going on there people died of sickness and things like that I mean, when, in your story, it also talks about the letter that was written before mm-hmm. they even got off the ship. Yeah. It was a pact, right? What was it called? Well, the Mayflower Compact, Compact. is what all of the, um, uh, the, the occupants of the Mayflower uh, wrote because there was disunity on the ship when they missed their location when they first came over. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were supposed to hit a certain area, and they missed it. Right. So basically, their charter could be void. Uh, that was given to them, that's where they were supposed to land. Uh, So there was a lot of disharmony. This letter that was given to them by their pastor, John Robinson, Mm -hmm. before they set sail, predicted trouble and Mm -hmm. turmoil. But he, he assured them, hey, look, form a body politic, take care of yourselves, respect one another, don't become like the kings and queens here. Everybody needs to work together. So it was kind of a social contract Mm -hmm. that he gave them. And I really think that the Mayflower Compact is a summary, an executive summary of this letter. And tell me this for the listeners. Of course, I already know it. Um, Why is it that they even left to come over here? Because they wanted to— Persecution. Persecution. Uh, my one of my great great grandfathers, uh, William Brewster, mm-hmm. was. Uh, I love that ice cream. And that great Bruce? Bruce, oh, sorry, <laughs> not the, not the same. Mm-hmm. But he was targeted to be thrown in jail. So they were, you know, in uh, 
and you know the king was looking for him. So okay, well I, that's interesting. I didn't. So know they're that all going to be put in it. prison for trying to, uh, you know, and, practice and their own so freedom. we see that in today's culture that people are are abandoning their countries because of religious persecution. Yeah. So it's not as if history hasn't repeated itself several times. People absolutely. I mean, when you're in danger, not just persecution. I mean, some people have religious persecution. It might be other. Um, persecution but the fact is history does repeat itself and things for back for the folks back then were able to create what I think is the best country in the world mm-hmm. right as oh, a result absolutely. of that as a result of that I mean and that's exactly what this is because they didn't want the the tyranny of the government that they came from so they they worked hard hard to form a government that represented everybody that's right because they work hard for their money they work hard money. <laughs> well, guys, I want to tell you, we really appreciate the opportunity to spend this hour with you. Please share this with friends and family by going to thehousinghour.com or facebook.com slash thehousinghour, and we'll see you next time right here on The Housing Hour. See you next time. That's The Housing Hour with Kevin Ray for today. Join Kevin and his guests each week at this time to keep up with the why and why not you need to know, so come here to find out. This show is presented by Mortgage Investors Group.